Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and we are happy to have you here today. We have a fantastic guest. I know I say that a lot, but I'm telling you, today is literally another all-time favorite. John Mark Comer. He is the author of My Name is Hope, Loveology, Garden City, God Has a Name, and his latest book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He is also the pastor for teaching and vision at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, where he lives, works, and writes. He is an Enneagram One, and this show is loaded down with pearls of wisdom. So get ready to hit that little 15-second rewind button again and again during this episode. Hey, be sure and follow us on socials. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Typology Podcast. And you can follow Ian on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ian Morgan Cron. Hey, that's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now, here is the host of our show, Ian Cron. John Mark, welcome to Typology. Yeah, so happy to be along. I have looked forward to this conversation. We have uh, spoken at uh, uh, the same events before and not ever met, which is very yeah, weird. I think I saw you one recently, and we were literally passing in the hallway, and you looked like you had your handlers who were like intent. <laughs> I thought, I think that's Ian Cron of Podcast Fame, and I pass his book around, and I would love to have coffee with him, but he's he's moving up in the world, and he's got handlers in a hallway underneath an auditorium somewhere. So it was <laughs> ships passing in the night. <laughs> okay, so you know, those are not my handlers. Those are my minders. <laughs> those people make sure that I actually arrive where I'm supposed to go. For because all of you listening, he pulled up in an Audi, sitting in the back, <laughs> a personal driver. No, I have no idea. No, that, that I mean, maybe. <laughs> No, man, it is so good to have you on the show. And I'm so excited because you're an Enneagram one. Yes, I I am. The perfectionist. Mm-hmm. Reformer sounds better, though. Yeah, here's another one. I there, like there's to... no such thing as a good perfectionist in people's minds. That's... Unless if you have an employee, all employers want to hire perfectionists, but nobody wants to be friends with them. So reformer sounds a little bit better. Yeah, I get it. How about this one, though? How about the improvers? Mm. Yeah, you know, I remember um, I'm also fascinated with Myers-Briggs, and years ago we did a Myers-Briggs training with our staff, and I, I passed our church, and, you know, we had a number of people on staff, and, and Myers-Briggs, some of those tests give you like a little one-sentence summary of your personality, and we went around and everybody read their one-sentence summary, and it's a group, it's a pastor, so it's mostly like twos and sevens, you know, and so the Two people before me were like, you only go around once in life. And then the person right next to me was giving life an extra squeeze. And then mine was, everything has room for improvement. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole place burst out laughing and I just felt like I wanted to cry. You know, I'm like, yeah, that's my personality in a sentence. Everything has room for improvement. That is amazing. So what, yeah. was, your, what was your introduction to the Enneagram? You know, I came to the Enneagram um, bef a little bit before it kind of hit the mainstream. Uh, my therapist gave it to me about seven years ago. I'd never heard of it, and I'd started with a, a PhD, kind of 70-something Quaker guy that I'm still with. It's been one of the most life-changing cha experiences ever. And uh, yeah, he introduced me to it. 
early on into therapy and said, hey, you should consider this and told me kind of what type, you know, he didn't take me through the whole thing. I think he gave me Rohr's book, I think, and uh, really early on introduced me to the seven levels of health from Enneagram Institute, which was like before there was a website, it was like you could only get it if you went to a conference and it was all hush-hush and kind of cultish and fun. So that was my introduction. And it was, it was a, it was like a whole new thing for me. You know, it was definitely a new paradigm for me that was incredibly painful and helpful. So, uh, in a way that the Myers-Briggs wasn't. Um, I actually love Myers-Briggs and the longer I, I think, I think all of them, you have to know what to do with them, you know? But yeah, what I loved about Enneagram, um, what, you know, Myers-Briggs is a little bit more static, you know, and depending on how you interpret it. And I do think that maturity is about growing into balance. So for an extrovert, it's growing into more spaces of quiet. For somebody like me who's introverted, growing into more spaces of spontaneity and being with people. But I, what I loved about Enneagram that Myers-Briggs and none of the other ones do is it gave me kind of a snapshot of what my spiritual journey would be. Mm. And kind of this is me, not only under, a lot of them do like this is you under stress and this is you when you're well-rested and happy. But this one gave me not just stress and healthy and happy. This one gave me, you know, me kind of early on in my spiritual journey and me down the road. Like if I were to continue in my paradigm following Jesus over many decades, this is who I could grow and mature into. And this is what Christ could look like through my personality. And that for me, that was a whole new thing. And especially, you know, and I don't know if this is my oneness or just uh, church culture or just the life I grew up in, but always feeling like pressure to conform to somebody else's personality and always wishing I was a seven or wishing I was a this or that or the other. And so it was so helpful for me. It just felt like almost like a load off my back to realize, oh, wow, no, I'm never going to be that. And here's a here's a vision of the kind of person I could mature into over the next 50 years. And that, for me, was it was game changer. I love what you just said. I had a, a guest on a, a while back who said, what I love about the Enneagram isn't that it tells you who you are, but, but who you could become. Mm. Yes. Yes. So good. And I thought, man, that really sort of nails the what what distinguishes it from other you know similar instruments which i love i mean i do i love myers-briggs i love anything that helps people grow in self-knowledge absolutely but any tool yeah any tool but this one was sort of special because it had this transformational path yes that that it that it made available none of them have and you know you know what's the saying about personality theories is that they reveal but they also conceal Mm -hmm. and i think that's the danger of all of them like i i was sitting through a little workshop a month or two ago, and they passed out a, like a one-page Enneagram sheet. And it was one I had not seen that was, you know, everybody kind of has a different summary of the thing. And it had like, you know, your wound, your virtue, your whatever. And I just went down, they had a little column that was basically, I don't think they used the word sin, but your sin, or your, I think they used the word vice. And it had like, you know, maybe three or four per number. And I just, I closed my eye to the left-hand column that had the numbers, and I just went down. There's probably 30 numbers, 30 words there. And I just thought, if I didn't have, and if I, I wasn't looking at an Enneagram sheet, if I was just looking at a list of vices, how many of these 30 would I say I struggle with? And it was like 27 of yeah. 30, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and of course, you know, for the, for the one, it was a couple of things. I'm like, oh, yes, those are like my besetting things, resentment, anger, you know criticism. 
But like pretty much all of them, it's not like I don't struggle with vanity or ego or anxiety or, you know what I mean? It was, yep. And so I think the danger to all of them is, you know, you take it on as an identity, as a one-stop shopping. And, it, and that's what I, I love when Enneagram's used well. I think it has the chance to show you this is one angle on who you are. It's not the angle. And it shows you who you could become. Yep. And that's, I think, some of my frustration with how Enneagram's being used more like a Myers-Briggs or a disc test, more and more like a personality theory for interpersonal relationships and I actually really don't personally like it for that I like it I actually I don't really want to know everybody else's deepest darkest motivation right <laughs> you know unless if it's like my spouse or somebody that I have to live with their shadow side I'd rather maybe that's just because my brain goes toward you know that part of things I, I'd rather I'd rather not think about that mm-hmm. but for personal kind of self-awareness and growth it's it's pretty hard to beat yeah Right. I, I'm always, I think I'm oftentimes the person who's always championing the limitations of the Enneagram with people, you know? Yeah. Because people get their hands on it and they get so excited and so enthusiastic. And I understand because it's like, oh my gosh, this explains so much, you know? And so I, I get it. Um, but they take it, they go overboard with it. And I'm always saying to them, listen, this is a low resolution picture. This yes. Is, this is not, you know. Oh, that's well said. You know, uh, it's not perfect. It's imprecise. Now, that low resolution picture, even if it's ten percent clear, if you are now ten percent clear to yourself, that is a enormous leap forward on the evolutionary mm. chain, right? Right. Yeah. Even ten percent, but that's huge. Yeah, but don't uh, don't run to the bank as the newest gospel. You know what I mean? Yes. It's a great tool, but that's that's uh, that's that's what it is. You know. And it seems like the even bigger danger is when people assume that it's eighty percent clarity and they use it on other people. Yes. That's you know what I mean? Because in spite of we have because we've used it a lot at our church, and we have said to we're building the place, don't weaponize this. This is not for you to like peg other people. And still, it's like, and our community is wonderful, but uh, it's just like, I can't tell you how often I hear, oh, that's such a four thing, or my community has too many threes, or da, 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 or, and it's so frustrating, because really, the only thing in my mind that it's easy to spot in other people are the the vices, like the low end of the Enneagram. That's why with, you know, older, really mature people, it's almost impossible for me to guess what they are. Like, it's very rare for me to meet a 70-year-old and be like, oh, that person, unless if it's like a seven or something, it's very hard for me to guess. It's easy to guess with people that are less mature yes. because you just spot, oh, there's a person who does their own thing and it's all emo. That must be a, and then you label them a four or whatever the thing is, you know, that person's off reading a book and doesn't want to engage with me. It's probably a five, you know, but it's, I just hate when we weaponize it like that. What, what for you, what, what drives you crazy about being uh, a one and what do you value most about being a one? Mm, um, I think what, let's start with the positive because I'm trying to retrain my brain in the way of Jesus to, to be more grateful and less critical. Yeah. I think one of the things that I, I love about being a one is that I think, um, and I don't mean this in a pretentious way at all, I think that integrity comes naturally to me. I think, um, and, and when I say I don't mean that in an arrogant way, I, like I don't think it's necessarily virtuous. I think it's just woven into the fabric of my personhood. I think my, I mean, my deepest desire is to be a good person, and it's some of that's like virtue, some of that's like deep commitment to Jesus, some of that's just how God made my brain and how I'm wired. 
And I think that is an aid to me. It's an aid to me as a person, as a husband and father, in fidelity to my marriage and my family. It's an aid to me as a pastor, in fidelity to everything from orthodoxy to you know my church over 16, 17 years now. And I think there's that deep inner part of me that, I mean, my has a strong desire to be good. And it's not always a virtuous desire. Sometimes it's not goodness for goodness sake. It's goodness so I don't feel bad, mm-hmm. you know? which is different. And so that's where I say this, it's nothing to brag about. It's just, I think, part of how I'm wired. And I think I'm really grateful for that. And I think it's been a great aid to me. Um, I think the thing that drives me crazy is just that, you know, un- and that the perfectionism, that, that never-ending, overbearing moral compass that follows me everywhere I go, every waking minute of my day, and sees everything that's wrong with the world. Mm. And, you know, it's just so hard to, I walk into a room and I see everything that isn't right. You know, I come home, my house can be perfect, but I see the one little speck of dust on the floor and I have to reach down and pick it up before I feel I can relax. You know, I look through a window, you know, we have this beautiful forest behind our house. We live right off downtown Portland up against Forest Park. And I look out and this is gorgeous forest and I'll see like, ooh, the dog got its nose on the window and have to go Windex the window really fast, (laughs) you know, rather than looking through the window (laughs) at the beauty of the forest. And I... I hate that, and and when I when I'm in a healthy place, I can I can leverage that part of my brain to see the good. Like I enjoy, like you know, my wife is so funny. She is so relaxed and so happy and so easy and and way way more happy, happier than I am just with life. But she doesn't enjoy life as deeply as I do. So when I get into something, like when I'm in a beautiful space or we're out hiking or it's a good meal or we're in front of a good film or a good novel, I mean, I like I I I'm thrilled with joy like i'm so deep into the pleasure of it and she's more like it's cool it's good you know so it's i I don't know if it's higher highs and lower lows that's that's more emotional language but but that so there's a good part of it that i want to grow and mature into but that never ending kind of everything could be done better it's just exhausting to live with Mm. you're always missing the forest for the nose (laughs) <laughs> sure waiting on that one huh yeah yeah i just like, i was i was just antsy in my seat i couldn't wait till you were done <laughs> well we have this new dog which has been a fascinating experience because i'm anti i've been so anti-dog though i'm falling in love with her but it's for we got her it's a very long story but we've been attempting to train her to not put her nose on the window um which is a very maybe one thing to do or yeah I don't know. that's that's pretty one it's I, mostly I, going well but i at the end of the day she is a beast that we're yeah. trying to live with <laughs> yeah wolves are no respecters of personality types <laughs> uh, they don't care for modern design and floor to ceiling windows what is wrong with them <laughs> you know <laughs> that's hilarious you know um I love what you actually did say, though, about the dog nose of uh, the dog's nose on the window and missing the forest, because, you know, I talk a lot about, you know, pay it like a little mantra I have with people is pay attention to what you pay attention to. Yeah, because what you pay attention to determines what you miss in life. Yes. And who you become and who you become. So if your attention is always migrating to what's wrong, yeah, you're, you're going to miss the beautiful forest. Yep, and you're going to be the person who is the what's wrong with everything person. Yes. And yeah. so the more you can open the aperture of attention. Mm, and I th- and great I, by the way, language. And, and I think this is a very contemplative 
theological worldview, right? How, yes. How can I open the aperture of attention so I can take in, uh, identify and take in the urgent immediacy of God's presence in all things? Mm, beautiful. Rather than my little laser attention only going. So as a four, you know, my attention isn't always going to what's not right. It's going to what's missing. Right. Like, you know, and there, and that then can lead to my having having this feeling of always being slightly disappointed because yes. because something has not lived up to the platonic ideal, mm-hmm. right? Everything falls nothing short. Does. Nothing yep. does. But in my and the heart, the ideal just destroys the reality. Exactly. Right. So what I've begun to do in my own sort of spiritual journey is to very consciously. Um, on a regular basis throughout the course of the day, when I begin to feel the pangs of disappointment or disillusionment with a situation or a relationship or a piece of music or whatever it may be, I just go, um, okay, we know what's missing, but what's here right now? Mm, Yeah. And, and, And maybe even to say, who's here right now? Yes. And I think those are, you know, sort of nice, um, things to do uh, to get your attention to open up beyond the fixation that your particular personality style what's your little you have a little um in the book a little four-step acronym is it step i'm trying to remember i wrote it down but i'm it's a little early still west coast time yeah no it's it's snap snap that's what it is Yeah. yeah stop notice ask and pivot right so just learning Throughout the course of a day, and, and actually this feathers beautifully into your, your new book, which I want to talk about, but learning to stop yeah. is so important, and it's so much more difficult than it sounds. Yep. And then learning to notice. and again, Where this, your brain has run off and what yes. you're thinking about. And yeah, and like what movies are you making in your head right now? Yes. Right. And 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 uh, what's, what's Douglas Steer, the Quaker's line? We suffer from interior immigration. Yes. Meaning there's just this constant, like, all of a sudden we're not here. We're somewhere else. We've immigrated. Our brain is off in la-la land, you know? Absolutely. We're literally lost in thought. So stop, notice. What's A A again? Well, it's ask, right? So, and I can, you know, I use this in in many different ways with people, but it's simply to, to ask yourself the question in the moment. For example, what am I believing right now? Yeah. Like, what story is my mind telling right now? Yeah. So in, in the situation you just referenced, my mind is telling me that um, all is not well with the world because the dog's nose print is on the window. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? But, yep. but it could be something as big as, you know, uh, right now I'm believing that I am uh, unredeemably deficient Yeah. at my core. And then, then the, maybe the second question in that ask uh, category might be, well, is it true? Yeah, <laughs> right. totally. You know, and that's a is huge that question. Is that true? Or there's a question that um, I'm not sure if you've had John Orberg on yet, but I've he I sit with him a few times a year, and it's not official spiritual direction, but that's functionally what I get. And one of the questions he gave me to ask in a little exercise, almost identical to this, is how would my life be different if I was living in the kingdom right now? Yes. Yes. You know, if, if I was living in in the with Jesus life under his rule, if I was in that space, how would my life be different right now? If mm. I didn't need the window to be perfect, to be happy, because I was already blessed, I was in the kingdom with Jesus, how would my life be different? Right. And so what you're doing there is 
you are uh, interrogating your taken for granted beliefs about the world mm-hmm. like yes. my like the world can't be okay as long as that dog nose print is on my window of right? course i can't absolutely i agree ian cron <laughs> <laughs> so then that p is actually to your question pivot it's like well what if i just decided to live in a different story right now yeah and what if i lived in the story of the kingdom right now and and chose to believe that the forest is infinitely more important than the than the stain on my window um and and to rejoice in that i mean these are this and you know you can do that in 15 seconds 10 times a day just keep bringing yourself back bringing yourself yeah. back bringing yourself back so that you don't it's, fall into the rut of your personality yeah, yeah I, I love that i remember that was a, one of the main things from your book that i actually wrote down i have it in my little journal over here even in spite of my forgetting the exact acronym right now i love that you mentioned con- contemplation that's become like the core of my spiritual practice mm-hmm. you know which I'm, and i'm a big believer in that for all personality types mm-hmm. but i think especially for mine it just gets a lot of traction i love gerald may's definition of contemplation as just to pay attention to what is yep and, you know, I think a big, um, as I pastor and think and teach and, and really work on spiritual formation, I've been thinking a lot about, um, this is a generation ago, I don't know what you think of M. Scott Peck, but his definition as a therapist of mental health as dedication to reality at all costs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it starts what psychology, what Christian spirituality, what Enneagram theory, what contemplative practice, what they all have in common is, I think, a, a recognition and awareness that one of the core human problems is an inability to face the pain of reality. Mm-hmm. Because reality, is, especially for my personality type, is a chronic disappointment. It's not good enough. It doesn't live up to the ideal and the Platonic ideal, you know. And um, different personality types will feel that in different ways, but all of us struggle to face the pain of reality. But if we don't face the pain of reality, then we don't fa- we don't experience the good of reality. You know, if we're not present to what is, if we're off on Netflix or in our mind or you know we've interior immigration, we're not is. So I think a big part of my even work as a teacher is helping people face reality in the kingdom of Jesus. Because I, I think, and the, you know, the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, which are, are ironic because it's the beginning of Jesus' most important teaching, and there are some of his most controversial scholars can't quite agree on how to interpret them. But the interpretation that I find the most compelling is not and this could be wrong, but it's not that they are a list of virtues, the poor in spirit, the meek, the peacemaker, the persecuted, but actually it's Jesus saying that the least likely people on earth can still be blessed, that you can come listen to Jesus and you can be poor and you can go home and still be poor and under the boot of the Roman Empire, but now you can be blessed because you're living in the kingdom with Jesus. And um, so I think helping people, helping myself come to that place where I can actually live happy, live blessed, because I'm in the kingdom with Jesus, no matter what is. I think that's where contemplative practice has been life-changing for me, and just Jesus has been life-changing for me. But I think that's the great like spiritual journey for me, is how do I become present to what is, and, and like recognize the sadness of what is, but then also tap into the deep goodness. And there's so, I feel like the older I get, the more joyful I'm becoming. And I feel like I'm just getting so excited about the deep goodness of the world mm. and of my life before God, which is very new for me. And mm. it's been many, many, many years, but I'm just getting little glimmers of it. And man, it's been really encouraging. 
You know, I uh, I actually um, studied at the Shalem Institute. Ger- Gerald, really? Yeah, Gerald was dead already uh, when I got there, but I, I studied with Tilden Edwards, who was sort of his yes his, successor. Uh, his successor, uh, actually, maybe even partner in the in the sort of the very beginning stages. Is that of, up in uh, Maryland? Where is mm-hmm, that? Up in the yep, East Coast? Right? Yep, yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, also, and then my doctoral work was in uh, my my coursework was all about was at Fordham, the Catholic University in New York, in in, okay. Tom, in Thomas Merton. And, wow. And so that whole idea of the contemplative life, I think, marries so beautifully with the Enneagram because um, our personalities are really illusory. Yeah. You know, they're not monolithic. They're more vaporous than they are, you know, some hard, you know, immovable, intractable thing. It's like, no, yeah. no, just don't take them so seriously. You know, it's like... Right. It's just a collection of defense stratagems. It's a little bit of disposition and temperament. But behind it is this core essential person who is infinitely more than the, the mischievousness of their, of their personality <laughs> style. Oh, so well said. Wow. You know? So as a one, you've just said so many things. I was like throwing notes down at a million miles an hour. You talked about this dedication to reality, to life as it is. You know, and I think... What, what the reason that we kind of walk through the world a little uh, dissatisfied and discontent, I think this is part of this human fallen condition. And yeah. I, I love how the Buddhists describe suffering. And most people don't understand. Now, I mean, obviously, I am a, you know, uh, I'm a Christian, but I always go looking for the truth wherever it might be found. You know? Yeah. And Buddhism is 80% psychology. And yes. Yep. Tons of overlap with actually Jesus' teachings, I think. Yes, absolutely. And so, but I, they use the word dukkha for suffering. And yeah. The, and, and the best definition I've ever heard for that is that, that suffering is the feeling of not at home. Hmm. Isn't that beautiful? It's the, yeah. It's the feeling that I'm not at home. Wow. And so we feel like that all day long. So that's what they mean when they say life is suffering, right? We all feel all the time like we are not at home. Yeah. Right. And so you said just earlier that, you know, that the contemplative life living in this world where we don't feel at home is about facing the pain of that. Yeah. Um, and that that's the, as I understood you saying it, the portal way to growth and to uh, to a life of, of love and wholeness. But, you know, here's a direct quote. I think it's it might even be in the road back to you. It's that ones are always fighting reality. They are in a constant like argument with reality yes, with reality yep that the world is broken and they don't have the time and the energy to fix it all like they think they can fix it which is a fight with reality which ends up being a fight with people mm, tell me about that and that's why it's so dangerous i mean i think and that's why i think contemplative prayer is so important again regardless your personality types because when when we can't face reality each of us will come up, and you could do a much better job with, than I could with this through Enneagram theory, but with our stratagem for either escaping reality or changing reality to make it what we want. Mm-hmm. And so, um, mm-hmm. obviously, escapism is the easiest thing, like just go on Instagram or stay up late watching, you know, Man in the High Castle. But for me, what I have to be really careful of is I will attempt to manipulate and change and fight and reform 
the people and events of my life to make them into what I want because I think I could put everybody on my improvement project to make them what I need to be happy. And that's where there's a there's an idea in the contemplative tradition that has many different names and iterations that has been really a core spiritual practice for me. So Ignatius of Loyola, it's normally translated from Spanish as indifference, as I'm sure you're familiar with all this, although I was just listening to an Ignatian scholar and he said freedom is a better translation of the Spanish word. And uh, Francis Salinac and other of the French mystics and Spanish mystics called it detachment. And it's very similar to some Buddhist thought, though it's a little mm-hmm. different, to some Stoic thought, though it's, it's different and it's because it's more based around love. But the basic thing is that you know we have to detach or become free, not of desire, and that's my big, like, where I don't, I can't get to Buddhism, not free of desire, but we have to be free of the need for our desires to go the way we want them to go to be happy. And as long as I need the people and events of my life to go a certain way to be happy, not only will I be unhappy, but I will hurt and wound and manipulate and damage other people. I will act in unloving ways, especially toward my wife and children that I'm people that I'm closest to, because they're not living into my ego ideal, into this little idealistic platonic thing in my mind. So I'll bad them, I'll criticize them, I'll manipulate them, I'll, you know, say, why are you eating those chips when I want them to lose five pounds or whatever? You know, I'll just, I'll be unloving. And so I have to learn to face reality if I'm ever to become a person of love, much less a person who's just happy and at ease in my own skin. Yes, I I agree that the whole uh, idea about detachment in the Buddhist tradition has some overlap within our our Christian tradition, but they they have this, the, the Buddha had this great quote where he says, um, Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and sorrow, come and go like the wind. To yes. Be, to be happy, rest like a giant tree in the midst of them all. Oh, that sounds, it's so funny how similar that quote is to Ignatius's famous from his exercises, you know, don't set your heart, I couldn't give the verbatim quote, but on a long life, on a short one, on sickness or on health, on poverty or wealth, um, but I think I think the line is maybe you know it from memory. But only to whatever leads to God's deepening life in mm-hmm. me. Yes, you know. Yes, something something that's probably not Google it for the exact verbatim quote. But it's it's beautiful, and I will come back and read that and reread that. Clearly not enough because I couldn't quote it from memory. But yeah, and I think in in our own lives, you know, I I think one day, you know, uh, you know, you someone says something nice about your work, uh, and you feel so wonderful, <laughs> and then three hours later, someone says you're awful, and then you know. Two days later, there's this, and as a pastor, oh my gosh, there's never a moment where you're being not being whipsawed around by other people's opinions of your work. And, and, and I just have to, I love that idea of just learning to rest like a giant tree in, oh, the, it's beautiful. in the midst so of it all. And, yeah. to, and that to me is that, that place of faith, like, you know, it, this is all just weather patterns, comes, it goes, but, but Jesus is forever, right? That's it. It's you know. so good. And I think that's for everyone. But especially for me, you know, like I love in those, and I think you use this language, I'm trying to remember from your books, and maybe not, but as the core virtue that ones have the potential to grow into being serenity. Yes. Which is, and that's the thing about Enneagram that when I was new to it just sounded absurd, that your vice literally becomes your virtue. Mm-hmm. That I that the journey for me is from anger to serenity. And that just sounded crazy to me at first. And I feel like, you know, I'm just now 
almost 40 at 39 almost 40 just now starting to see little moments where I don't embody the angry resentment perfectionist nitpicky I'm actually the serene person in the room and it's when I'm healthy and it's when I'm relaxed and it's not all the time but there's just those little pockets where I'm like ooh that's who I could become yes and there's little moments when I am that person now and oh wow that that feels really good Hey, that's it for part one of our two-part series with John Mark Comer. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Be sure and tune in next week to catch the rest of that conversation between Ian and John Mark. That's it for today. Much love to our Typology tribe from Ian Cron and myself, Anthony Skinner. Until next time, have a fantastic week. See ya. See ya.